I don't know if you relate to this, but when I read about historical figures, let's take George Washington. I read about him, and we know the facts. We know his, his uh, being a general, being a president. We know some of the accomplishments that he's done. But then I, I think about, I wonder what George's favorite meal was. I wonder what made George laugh. That's not in the history books. I wonder what the things were that just really aggravated him. I wonder what kind of conversations he and Martha had late at night. I wonder if George worried. Anybody ever seen that in, the, in a book? He, you know, you just see him, you know, with his hand tucked in his coat, ready, looks like he's always ready to go. But I'm sure he worried. He's a human being. And I love that aspect of history, but it's kind of hard to find. And after a while, historical figures, they sometimes begin to, to create the paper version, the history book version. And it's almost that they're, they're not real. I think that's true about our faith, about Christianity. I believe that people sometimes know about the conceptual Jesus, but it's just kind of a cardboard version. They understand the facts that He died, that He rose from the dead. Now, whether they've experienced a true encounter with Him is a different story. You may, in fact, be here today and you think, gosh, I, I know a lot. I've heard things about Jesus. I, I, I understand who He is historically. I understand that He was a good teacher, a good man. I've heard some people call Him Savior. I've heard some people call Him Messiah, King. I heard that the songs that you're singing, most of us, I would think, in this room are Christians, but maybe there's some that are exploring who Christ is. And they may be saying, gosh, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not fully connected. I would even say for Christians... We run the risk at times of having our faith become more cardboard than it is real. More than ever, more than ever these days, I'm getting emails from fellow brothers and sisters in the faith, fellow Christians who are saying, my faith feels cardboard. They don't say it in those terms, but they, my faith seems flat. My interaction with God seems dull. That may be you. It may actually be a lot of you. And I believe that we come together to worship, to hear from the Word of God, a lot of different reasons. But I do believe often that we come together to charge one another, to, to inspire one another, to, to re-engage and say, oh, this is not just a concept. It's not just a, a cardboard theory. Christ coming back from the dead is not just something we sing about. But the implications are clear that we have total access to Almighty God who created this entire universe. I can't even wrap my head around that. I can't even totally, as a human being, connect. But I do know that I have access to have interaction with Christ. And if it were just a cardboard theory, it would make no sense at all. It would just be that, a cardboard theory. Have you ever been in, in a scenario where you're, you, you know about somebody and, and you, you're talking about them as if they're not real and then they show up? Have you ever seen that? Well, this past week I saw this, this clip from uh, one of the late night comedy shows and, and um, I don't know if you know the name Robinson Cano. Robinson Cano used to play for the New York Yankees and uh, he, apparently he's worth a lot of money and he's very, very good at what he does. However, he was offered more money in, uh, in Seattle with the Mariners, and so he took the job. 
Well, of course, the New York uh, fans, the Yankees fans, that just ticked them off that they had this star player, and all of a sudden he went for a higher pay just to, to for the higher pay, it seemed like, to play for a team that hasn't won really many uh, World Series, but he, he took the job anyway. The challenge is when these folks come back, like when, when Cano comes back and plays in New York City, that every time he steps up to the plate, the whole stadium is booing because they feel like, you know, he's a, he's a traitor. So recently, Cano, playing for Seattle, came back to New York City, and there was kind of this planned strategy of booing, that when he stepped up to the whole plate, many fans came together and said, let's just boo him together. And so there, it just kind of was spreading through the city. So this late night comedy show caught wind of all this, and they said, I'll tell you what we'll do. Why don't we get the booing going before the game? And we'll set up a cardboard picture of Robinson Cano on the street. And we'll allow these fans, as they're going by, we'll interview them, say, how are you feeling about Robinson Cano? Ah, man, the guy ticks me off. He changed teams and whatever. Well, here's a cutout picture of him. Why don't you just get right in his face and have the opportunity to boo him right to his cardboard face? Well, what they didn't know is the real Robinson Cano was hiding behind the cardboard. Take a look. Hi, I'm Robinson Cano. And I'm about to get booed by some Yankees fan. Are you a Yankee fan? Yes. Now, Robinson Cano is coming back to Yankee Stadium tomorrow night for the first time since becoming a Seattle Mariner. Are you going to boo him? Of course. All right, well, we have this picture of him right behind you, so whenever you're ready, go ahead and boo it as much as you want. Boo! You know what? You no longer welcome here. Bye. Try again. You no longer. Oh, I do. I do. Well, uh, whenever you're ready, go ahead. All right. Give him your best boo. Boo! Maybe try, try it again. Should I try it again? Yeah. <laughs> How you doing, Robbie? Welcome back to New York. Thank you. back, right? Yes, sir. Thank you. <laughs> Are you going to boo him? Uh, you know, he won a World Series ring here, but he did leave for the money, so... Why don't you go ahead and give him as many boos as you want? Come on, Robinson. I mean... How many World Series titles do the Mariners have? Oh, come on, boo! You're better than that. You got a, a beard now? You're better than that. Boo! Boo! Welcome back to New York. Thank you. Uh, whenever you're ready, go ahead and boo! Move. You should go home, boo! Try booing him one more time. Yeah. Oh! <laughs> How you doing, man? Are you going to boo him? Yes, I am. Boo. All right. Well, we actually have this picture of him right behind you. So whenever you're ready, go ahead. Boom as much as you want. Boo, Robinson. You should have stayed here. Winners is in New York, not in Seattle. Try booing him one more time. Boo. Stay in Seattle. We don't need you in New York. Hey. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Go ahead. Boom as much as you want. Boo. Boo. Whoa. <laughs> How you doing? Yeah, thanks for the boo. Yeah, well, I, 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 I won't boo you. I won't boo you. I won't actually boo you. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll be rooting for you to uh, play well, but not win. <laughs> Are you gonna boo him? Absolutely. All right. Well, whenever you're ready, go ahead and uh, boo him for as long as you want. Right here. Yep. Boo! 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 Come on, everybody. Boo! Listen, about that, right? Here's what happened. <laughs> <laughs>
That's weird. Only in New York. <laughs> Only in New York. I swear. <laughs> You see, people are okay with conceptual Jesus, with cardboard Jesus. You know, people like, man, I'm angry with God. If I were right here with God, blah, blah, blah. And if he walked in the room, woo, right? And then they would say, well, about that. <laughs> when we stand before Christ, well, about my life. I, you know, I, you know, It's easier to deal with a distant cardboard Jesus. Even in the early days when the word just started getting out. If you notice, if you read the context of the stories, when these early apostles, these early disciples were speaking about Christ, everybody was okay until the mention of the resurrection. There are times that Stephen, that Paul, that, uh, that John, uh, that they would begin to talk about the gospel, the, and everybody was okay with the concept. Stephen would go through this long history of here's what happened, here's where God moved in the country of Israel, the nation of Israel, and then uh, they were even okay when these guys said, and you guys delivered him over to death because they understood that. They knew it. They understood no one that I have ever known has ever defied the crucifixion. When you say Christ died, I've never heard anybody say, I don't know about that. But when you move to the resurrection, there's all types of theories of how it didn't happen. Watch Acts chapter 4, verse 1. Acts chapter 4, verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees, these were the, the leaders, the religious leaders, came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. Watch. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. That's exactly what disturbed them. Not the concept of Christ, but this is past the concept. This is a reality. This is Jesus walking out from beneath, behind the cardboard. Later in the book of Acts, Paul is standing before a a leader, a governmental leader, his name is Festus, not the one in gun smoke, I always feel necessary to say that, standing before this, this man named Festus. And watch what happens. Paul is saying to this leader, he's given him now the whole history. We don't have time this morning to go the whole history. You can go back and look it up if you'd like. Acts chapter 26, verse 22, Paul is saying, look, Festus, I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses would happen. In other words, they, they said this many, many years before Christ. Are you with me? He said, yeah, I'm with you. That Christ would suffer. Are you with me? Are you with? Yeah, I, I, I got that. And as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles, at this point, the moment he said, Christ is not a concept, he's alive. He's back from the dead. You can interact. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. He said, you're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. Paul says, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I am saying is true and reasonable. You see, from the very beginning of time, when you look in the third chapter of Genesis, there has been a tension, a struggle of validity. God came along and said, here's the way it is, and the enemy, the devil, came along and said, did God really say that? I want to challenge that validity. That challenge of validity has not changed from that day in, in the Garden of Eden all the way to here. I had a, uh, some, a mom come up uh, to, us, to me afterwards, after the first service. And on her phone, she said, I want to show you something. And it was a, a science test 
of her third grader's uh, 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 class. And she says, I had to take a picture of him and bring it to church and show you. The question was something like, how did the world begin? It gave three options. None of them had God in the options. But it was that the world became denser and denser, was letter A. And then letter B was it formed from a particle and blah, blah, blah. And then it, 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 I forget what the third one was. This third grader put an X through all three of them. She said, at the end, I disagree. God created everything. Woo! <laughs> I'm excited about that because the things that once were theories have now become facts for some people. There is a tension between the validity of God. We see it in, in this scripture when we're reading here with, 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 um, with the, uh, uh, Peter and John. Now watch. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, here's the truth of the matter. Not the cardboard version, but the real version. The serious version. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the, death of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. That's the real version. Here's why it's serious. Here's why we talk about it this morning. Simply this. Over one-third of the United States, are you ready? Over one-third, we're talking about tens of millions of people, over one-third of the United States believes that Jesus Christ is dead. One-third, and that number is rising. This is not just a difference of opinion if we take the real version in actuality. This is not about, okay, you don't believe what I believe, so I'm going to get upset because we don't believe that. I'm, you know, I'm a Red Sox fan, you're a Yankees fan, we're just going to go at it. This is a matter of life and death. This is a matter of eternal life and death. The thing that should impassion us to take God's message to the world is simply this. There is a reality that you are either dead or you're alive. This is not a message of human death or human life. This is a message of eternal life and eternal death. The mission is extremely serious. In this fight that we have been going through these last number of weeks, actually, we're almost to the end. We've been looking at the life of Joseph. I want to say something very clearly before we dive in here with the life of Joseph. Today, we're not talking about the fight to share facts. No offense intended, but it is my assessment after being a Christ follower for over three decades, it is that my assessment of the church culture is that we're way understudied. We're way unprepared to give an answer to our faith. Quite frankly, we've won it. We've fallen to a trap of wanting Christianity light. We want the low-cal version, the remote control, the microwave version, so that we can just learn a little bit. We could come to church and listen to a sermon and hear songs, and yet when someone would ask us about the resurrection, all we can say is that he came back from the dead, but we can't give any semblance of foundation. It's so serious because the world is not just unbelieving, but as we've just read, life only comes through one man, and we understand who that is, and we interact with that so my, my challenge to the Christian culture is this, that to begin with, this is just putting your shoes on, to begin with, 
We must study just a bit. In fact, the Bible says, study to show yourself approved. Be prepared in season, out season, October, September, spring, fall, summer, in work, out of work, on the tennis courts, in your backyard, doing a barbecue, wherever you are, be prepared to say, oh, let me, let me give you the Bible's answer on that and my fear, my concern, not just for the church, but the world, millions of people who believe that Christ is dead, faced off with people who don't have an answer. But today's message, today's focus could be this. You need to learn more facts. Well, you, you, you might have to. But it's not facts that will change a life. We can know so much about uh, apologetics and Bible studies and, and whatnot because I know plenty of Christians that know all that stuff, but I don't see life change around them, them impacting. Today, we're not fighting to share facts. We're fighting to share life. Let me break that down, what I mean. We're going to land in Genesis right now, in Genesis chapter 37. Next week, we end this track with the life of Joseph of the Old Testament. For those who have been in this, this collection now for seven or eight weeks, if you'll be patient for those and considerate of those that are just coming in, if you'll let, get, let me give a snapshot just for a couple of minutes of where we are in this story. The story of Joseph in the Old Testament is a brilliant parallel picture to Jesus Christ in many regards. You'll remember that Joseph was sold out by his brothers, much like Christ was sold out by his own. We're, we're told that jo the brothers of Joseph became jealous of, of Joseph, much like those religious leaders became jealous of Christ. Joseph was accused for crimes that he didn't commit, exactly like Christ was uh, accused for crimes he didn't commit. Joseph was sold for a handful of coins. Christ was sold for a handful of coins. Joseph was put in, the, in a cavity, a prison. Christ was put in a cavity of the, uh, of the tomb. Joseph came out of that cavity by a power not of his own. We're told that Christ came out of the grave by the power of the Father. Then Joseph was elevated, as we've seen in this, country, in this story in the country of Egypt, as the secretary of agriculture. He and he alone was positioned to give, to provide for the rest of the world. Christ alone came back from the dead, and He alone is positioned to be able to distribute and to be able to provide for the whole world. And then, and then Joseph, once he provided for the whole world because there was famine, he was storing food, had endless provisions for the whole world. Now his brothers, who had sold him out, now were going to come face to face with Christ. No more cardboard version. Much like the entire world, we're told in Philippians chapter 2, the entire world will come before the living Christ. And at that moment, they'll go, oh, oh, whoa, about that. Face to face, we're told that not some knees, not that many knees, not that most knees, but every knee will bow to the risen Christ in that moment. It's a scintillating story on both ends, but when you read this story of Joseph, there's a, such a drama that's built into it. And these, these, um, these boys, Joseph's brother, they, they were in Canaan. They ran out of food like the rest of the world, and they were forced to go to Egypt. They didn't know that Joseph was in control. They were forced to go to Egypt, and they came face to face. Meanwhile, Joseph's father, who thought, uh, that thought uh, Joseph was dead, Jacob, 
is still living in Canaan because he, was, because he sent the boys to go get some food. Are you with me? At the beginning of this story, we see something that's riveting. The sons of Jacob sold out Joseph, but then they began to cover their tracks, and they had to go back to the father and say, here's what happens, and they lied to him. The now famous multicolored coat of Joseph was taken from him once they sold him out to another country. And in Genesis chapter 37, verse 31, here's what they did, the brothers. They got Joseph's robe. They slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father, Jacob, and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. They presented false evidence. He recognized it and he said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Just speculation, by the way. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Listen, I am stunned. I am stunned how people will create their whole worldview based on false information that they themselves have not dug deep enough. There, I was just talking to someone before the service. I have a very close Muslim friend, and I asked him, why are you a Muslim? I'd like to have a decent conversation. Their answer, their single answer, I'm a Muslim because my mother is a Muslim. I'm like, really? Would you be open to the truth of Christ? Nope. Not even open to having a conversation. Very friendly conversation we're having. It's stunning the people I speak to who believe that, you know, who have the coexist bumper sticker where a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and it really doesn't matter. All roads lead to God. That is the predominant religion of America these days. I'm not just surprised about that, but I'm surprised how easily people have come to that conclusion with just a robe dipped in blood and say, this is the real deal. Some scientist in, in Europe says there's a little particle that started the whole thing, and it's surprising that half the world says, well, okay, I checked B. It started from a particle. It's not that those, re, those answers are worth dialoguing, have a conversation. They're absolutely worth it, and that's why we're prepared. The stunning thing is that Jacob fell for it just like that with no wrestling. Let me check this out. Let me take the blood. Send it to a lab. Oh, that was goat blood. Good news. It wasn't my son. Nope. I'll just take it at face value. It heightens for me the energy, the passion, the compassion to say, oh, man, these truly are sheep without an answer. We have it. May I say it again? We have it. We have it. Hello. We have it. <laughs> there is an obligation not just to get my spiritual life on. We're not put on the planet just to have peace with God. We're put on the planet to advance the kingdom of Christ. So our spiritual lives are just such as that. Now, we catch up to the story. If you want to flip over with me to Genesis chapter 45. The brothers have come. They've gotten their food. Joseph has stepped out from beneath the cardboard image He's become real to them. He talks to them as we see last week. He wept with them. He embraced them. He kissed every single one of them. This is, and at this point, if you interviewed any of those guys, Reuben or any of the brothers, say, do you think this thing is real? Of course it's real. Why? Because I've been with them. 
This is not a concept. I've been with him. I've touched him. The apostle John wrote, wrote in his letter, that which we have seen, that which we have touched, that's which we, that which we have heard. In other words, we've been face to face with Christ. It's not just a bunch of facts. And he says, now, okay, I'm going to send you on a mission. Joseph, like Christ, sends us on a mission. And he looked at his brothers and said, now we've connected. We've reconciled. You know, now know I'm not cardboard. You know I'm the real deal. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. You see, you could say, hey, welcome to Egypt. Glad you're here. Got plenty of food. I'm the head hot dog. You'll be taken care of. It's easy in the Christian experience to say, oh, I got mine. This is per. I got a lot of food. God's endless supply. But he says, no, I got a mission for you. I need you to go and carry this mission. And by the way, it's good news. I'm so thankful that God doesn't send us to the world with bad news. Can you imagine? I got some bad news for you, Bob. Ain't looking good, man. No, we got some great news. Watch. Joseph looks at his brothers and said, I'm sending you on point. Watch. Genesis chapter 45, verse 26. So the brothers, they went up out of Egypt. They came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan because they're on mission. And here's the words they said. Here's the mission. They told him, Joseph is still alive. He's not a historical figure. He's not in the book of your lineage, and he's not. He's still alive. Christ is not just some religious figure who lays in a grave and just did nice things and taught great philosophy. None of that. No, Christ is alive. That means he can interact with us. Joseph is still alive. Not only that, he's in charge. He's the ruler of Egypt. Watch. As the world, Jacob was stunned and he didn't believe him. I'm like, ah, man, what a rotten ending to the story. It's not the ending. So many of us are deflated when we're excited about all that I'm excited about. Christ is alive. He's distinctive above every religious leader that ever walked the planet. He's alive. We can interact with him. We can, we can you know, we forget the world doesn't speak our lingo. You know, we got our own Christianese. You, you know how that rolls. You heard about the guy on an airplane where he, he, the, he's sitting next to a guy and, he's, and the guy says, hey, I got a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And the guy goes back to, 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 you know, he goes back to a friend of his and says, dude, you never believe it. I just talked to a guy who says he knows Jesus Christ. Now, for us, I was like, we're very comfortable with that. But if I have uh, some time with you afterwards, and say, hey, I, I got to tell you something. I've got a personal living relationship with George Washington. I mean, it's really awesome, man. We talk to each other. You're going to think, dude, you got to calm down. I mean, you're working too hard, right? <laughs> well, to the world, that's what it sounds like. We forget that. To say that a man who died on a cross is alive, we can't forget that this story is stunning. It is hard to believe, humanly speaking. So many Christians are deflated by that response this story is teaching us, oh, don't give up. It's not all about you. It's not about your skill set. And it's not about you fighting to share facts. It's much more than that. Watch. He was stunned. He didn't believe them. Very next verse, verse 27. But when the brothers, the sons of Jacob, told him 
everything Joseph had said to them. And when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father, Jacob, revived. Let me break it down for you. This is not about learning enough facts to share with people. It wasn't the fact that, jo- that these brothers had facts about Joseph, but they had walked with him and talked with him and embraced him. It was the fact that they had been with him and that life, and he gave them things that they could show in their life. Christian, listen, it's not the knowledge that we have. It's the life that we have in Christ. I know many Christians who have many facts. They're Bible Bob, but they haven't changed my life one bit because they haven't spent enough time with Joseph that I could see the provisions in their life. They haven't spent enough time with Christ. When people, when we're intersecting with people, it's not the facts that we share. It's the life of Christ that we share with them. Ravi Zacharias is one of my favorite preachers on earth. Probably one of, if not the most brilliant Christians that is currently on this planet. He is, in my opinion, the new Billy Graham to the college campuses. He goes to the, some of the highest level college campuses because he is articulate with what he has to say. Brilliant in his ability to answer some of the most difficult questions that can be asked. But I would propose to you, as I've listened to him, I I listen to him every single week. When I listen to him, people are flocked to him for for another reason. He was just in Jakarta not, not too long ago. Six bodyguards surrounded him the entire time. They were expecting 250 students. More than 2,000 students flooded into this room. Why? Because people are looking for life. Like Jacob, they're hungry, starving, even if they can't articulate, starving for their spirits to be revived because instinctively they know, as I did, as you did before I became a Christian, something's off. Something's dead. Something's wilted. Something's not alive. 2,000 students from Jakarta packed in this room. I don't think they came packed in this room because there's a man who knows facts. As I've listened to this man year after year after year, they packed into this room because he walks with Christ. I can hear it in his voice. I can hear it in his experiences, his stories. So here it is. Learn your facts, absolutely. But the fight is a fight to spend time with God, to walk with God. Now, some of you, I know you, you have devotionals, maybe like the daily bread. Great. Good, good, good job. Keep, keep going with that. Some people are on a Bible reading program. Great. Keep going with that. I'm not talking about that, by the way. You should do those things. 60% of Christians have not picked up their Bible since last Sunday. That's what the stats show us. How can we answer a starving world in that mode? But here it is. It's not just about spending our 10 minutes with God in in something we're reading. After we do that, after we prepare our hearts, I love the Word of God. I read it hours and hours every week. 
But I recognize that there's a time to say, okay, God, now it's you and me. I'm going to wrestle in prayer. And I do wrestle in prayer. I'm not a good prayer, to be honest with you. I don't, I don't just walk out and say, man, that was, the most, that was a mountaintop experience. I'm human. I struggle. I've got things on my mind. I get in there. I'm like, dear God, oh, man, I've got to get those cucumbers when I get to the store. Right? I'm just being honest. I'm saying that so you don't feel bad when you're distracted because you'll think I'm some holy man. Hang around me. I'll disprove that in a second. I'm not. I struggle. I've got things. That the, the, the computer's calling me. The voicemail's calling me. The texting is calling me. The Facebook is calling me. My wife is calling me. My kids are calling me. I'm being torn in all different directions. I've got to fight to spend time with Christ so I've got a well from which to draw to share life, not facts. This is what makes it non-cardboard. Nobody in this world just needs three bullet points. They need to know that you've been with Joseph. They need to see that cart, that when you've been with Joseph, Jesus, you know what I'm saying, the picture, when you've been with Jesus and he's given you provision and, and he's working in your life, people will see it. Think about your own life. The people who have made the greatest impact on your life, was it because of their facts, their knowledge, or was it because their walk with Christ was undeniable? Easy answer. Watch. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 says so many things to us. This is the full story. It's a lengthier passage, so be patient for a second. The priest, the scenario, is that Peter and John had just displayed an amazing miracle and healed a crippled man. But then they went on and began to explain that they had been with Christ and that they had spent time. It was evident. These men were prayers. The priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees, all the big boys of the religious world came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. These guys were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming the real Jesus, not the cardboard one, the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John. And because it was evening and they put them in jail until the next day, the next day the rulers and elders and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest family. I want you to put yourself in their sandals. This is a big deal. They're face to face with human death. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this, they asked. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers, elders of the people, if we're being called into account today for an act of kindness showed to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, if that's the question, then let me tell you, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Now he's beginning to present the facts. Be he's beginning to give the gospel story. Salvation is found in no one, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. If we stop the story right there, you think, okay, I'm tracking. But I don't want you to miss what happens next and their response. Watch. Watch. 
when they, these religious rulers, saw the courage of Peter and John, and they realized they were ordinary dudes, they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. That was the life changer and the provision that God was giving through them. But since they could visibly see that God was working through them, the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was absolutely nothing that they could say. People will argue with their facts. They cannot argue with true, authentic transformation that comes from hanging out with Jesus Christ, the risen one. This morning, I was on a walk, as I do almost every single morning, and I ran across this bad boy, snakeskin. I have two boys. I'm like, oh, yeah, they're going to dig that. They haven't seen it yet. I was waiting until after church because there will be a fight that ensues over who gets it. So I thought, well, I'll save my, my level of anxiety until after church, and then I'll present it to them. Maybe I'll just tear it right in half. It's a small, hey, I found two small snake skins, <laughs> two little baby snakes. When I come home and I say, hey, look, guys, look what I found. I found evidence that there was a real snake. That's one thing. Oh, cool. Let me see it, right? If I came home and said, hey, guys, I was walking this morning, and I saw a real snake, and I picked it up, and I brought it home with me. It's my, my, my pocket. First, my wife will kill me, but it's in the house now. But I, I got the real thing. They're going, whoa, that's the real thing. People, listen, are not looking for this. This brings no, whoa, a snake skin. If I were holding a real snake up here, I'm like, yeah, check it out. And I throw it over there to you, you're going to freak out. At least I would. The thing we fight against is this. The big box store, microwave, remote control approach to our faith. If you spend two minutes with God, people will know that you only spent two minutes with God. I don't care about your strategies, your facts, your knowledge. People know. But if you're willing to fight, not for your own spiritual peace, but fight to spend time with God so that others see the provisions of God in your life and the undeniable sense, like these boys, Peter and John, that they took note that they had been with Jesus. It's life-changing. Finally, let me say this to you. We are put on this planet to advance the kingdom of Christ, as I said before. Some Christians don't know that we will stand before Christ as Christians at the end of time. It's called the Bema Seat of Christ. At that Bema Seat, we will be called into question about many things. This is not a judgment seat that will send us into eternal damnation. It's not. We are saved by the blood of Christ, and we are eternally protected by that. But when we stand before Christ... It's a time where He takes assessment, inventory of our lives. It's not just that I was a nice guy. Ah, Steve, way to go, you were nice. He's going to take inventory of the fruit of those that I I fought, that you fought hard to share life with. 
but to, to fight hard to be with Christ so that I could share life and not just cardboard facts. We're going to look around and we're going to say, man, who is with us? Who is it that Steve McCoy has impacted? Is there just one? Is there none? Is there 200? It will matter because that's what Christ is looking for. John tells us that God is glorified by the fruit, not just the fruit of peace and happiness and joy and love and all those things, but the fruit of becoming, of reproducing in other people's lives. It matters. It should drive us. This past Monday, there was a man on this planet that celebrated a birthday. I brought his picture today. This man's name is Nicholas Winton. Some of you may not know who this man is. On his birthday on Monday, he turned 105 years old. 105. I'd like to tell you a little bit about the story of Nicholas Winton. It hits close to home but it, because it involves the Czech Republic. I saw a piece on Nicholas Winton two weeks ago on 60 Minutes. See, when Nicholas Winton was a young man, I brought a picture of him as a young man. He grew up in London. He was a successful stockbroker. He was born into a Jewish family, but they converted to Christ. And his conversion to Christ modified his worldview, his actions. In the 1930s, things began to become unsettled again in Europe. Hitler was having, gaining more power with the Munich Agreement. It opened the door for Hitler to enter into other countries, Poland, then the Czechoslovakia, etc., in, the, in December of 1938, Nicholas Winton was invited by a friend to go skiing in Switzerland. This is going to be a vacation, a winter vacation. So he said, it'd be great. He went to Switzerland. But on the way, there was another friend that, that contacted him and said, do you understand what's happening in Europe? Because this friend lived in Prague, then Czechoslovakia. And he said, what's happening is refugees from the rest of Europe are now beginning to pour in to our country. Would you come and help for just to, just to take a look? And he, and he said, okay, I'll cancel my skiing plans and I'll go to the Czech Republic. And so he went to then Czechoslovakia. He was stunned at the lives that were so broken. He was moved by those who were facing death, humanly speaking. But from a Christian point of view, his compassion became very real. He actually spent three weeks in Prague, and he began to meet with Jewish families because they knew that the imminent demise of their families was right before them. And so he said, I got a plan. Adults are not allowed to come out of the country now because the the Nazis had now invaded Sudetenland, which was a portion of Czechoslovakia. But Prague was not occupied. It wasn't occupied until uh, less than a year from then. He said, here's the plan. At least we can save your children. I cannot imagine how hard it must have been having two kids of my own to put your kids on a train to get them out of the country, knowing you may not see them again. And the majority of these parents who sent their kids away to be saved 
thought of someone else, not themselves, to, to, the majority of these parents and children never saw each other again. The vast majority were executed in concentration camps. But this man, Nicholas Winton, he lied to the British government in order to get them into the country. He created his own agency, a letterhead. There was no agency. He was just trying to get kids out. The interviewer said, do you feel bad about lying to the government? He said, not for a second. I was saving lives. He began to fill trainloads of kids to get them out of Czechoslovakia to save them from this impending danger and perilous end that they were surely going to face. And he began to ship them through Europe and eventually to England. The government said, under one condition, that you find a family for each of these kids. And he put enough effort in to save these kids by finding a family for each of these kids. 669 children were saved because of this man. Because he had enough about him that he was trying to save lives. Not so long ago, the BBC ran a story on him. You see, Nicholas Winton was, is so humble, when you hear his interviews, so humble, that he didn't share this story and what he had done for decade after decade after decade, for 50 years. Nobody even knew that he had done anything. Much like Christ, or the world doesn't know anything until a moment where you're standing before Christ, it's going to be a moment to say, wow, these are the lives you impacted. We never knew. It's awesome. It's the, the Bema seat of Christ, if you're sharing life, is going to be incredible. But you have to share life. You have to reproduce. So the BBC ran this show. Nicholas Winton was sitting in the audience, not aware of what was going on. Some of the children that he had saved now grown up, older adults, were also sitting in the audience, and they didn't know that he was sitting there. They had brought them together. I want to show you a clip of this very moving moment, but as you look at it, I want you to be motivated and to elevate your thinking, to understand that you will stand before the real Christ one day, and He asks you, who is it that you've shared life with? Who is here? Just a couple, a couple hundred. Who is here that you've impacted their life? Watch. All the letters. Back here is the list of all the children. This is Vera Diamant, now Vera Gissing. We did find her name on his list. Vera Gissing is with us here tonight. Hello, Vera. And uh, I should tell you that you are actually sitting next to Nicholas Winton. <laughs> and it was just so wonderful, so terribly, terribly touching. Can I ask, is there anyone in our audience tonight who owes their life to Nicholas Winton. If so, could you stand up, please?
look at Christ in the eye, I'm guessing he's going to ask us a question. Was it worth the fight? When you see all these people around you whom you've impacted, 669, nope, not the number any longer. See, these, these people here, they're great-grandparents now. They're grandparents. They're parents. The number is no longer 669. It's 15,000. One stockbroker. One plumber. One landscaper. One teacher. One chaplain. One nurse. One, one business person. Just one life can multiply if you invest and spend time with the risen Christ so that you have a life to share. And from that life, it will multiply. And when you stand before Christ, you will look behind you and see all those lives you've invested in. And Christ will take your hand and say, it was worth it. So the message that Christ gives to us is fight because it is worth every soul that needs to be revived. Father, thank you for Christ, that he's not a cardboard concept, God, that he's the real deal. How can we be recipients of such power and provision and keep it to ourselves? I pray, Father, that we'll fight, and we have to, God, you know, that we'll fight to spend time with you as these brothers spent time with Joseph so that when we tell others that Christ is alive, it's not just facts that we have learned. We're not just parroting things we've heard in a sermon or a song, but it's because we've interacted with the real Jesus. And on that day when we stand before Christ without a shadow of a doubt we will say it was worth the fight so I pray God for your church today help us discard the lighter version of Christianity and help us walk with you. Help us to fight to walk with you, God, so that we bear our lives and share our lives with others. In the name of Christ, who is alive. <laughs>